0: Hey there, ghosties, welcome to episode 74 of the Ghost Lights Podcast. This evening we sat down with Julie Rada, a woman I've had a great deal of respect for for a long time. We've talked about the birth of her love of theater, how it helped her find her voice, her work in the prison system, and how important collaboration and authenticity is to our work and our lives. At this time, I'd like to remind you of the Gunnison Valley Theater Festival the first of its kind, starting this weekend. They have a film debut, improv with Creed Repertory Theater, plays like Much Ado About Nothing, and Almost Maine. For tickets and information, please visit westerntheatercompany.com slash Gunnison-Valley-Theater-Festival. Now, Dan, give us War by the Hypnotic Brass Ensemble. there ghosties welcome to episode 74 of the ghost lights podcast today's guest i'm really happy to have this person on she's amazing i got a lot of respect for her and i hope you do too it's julie rada everybody hi julie
1: hi sam how the heck are you good to see you yeah um you know i'm doing great it's springtime in denver it's beautiful
0: you got the sun out it's really my 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 dungeon of a basement apartment actually has some light today so it's I feel I feel like spring has indeed sprung.
1: Yeah, it yeah. has. And I'm a I'm a warm weather kind of person and this mm. sure felt like one of the longest winters of my life. So I'm relishing the sunshine and the green leaves and the flowers for sure.
0: That's that is a that's a very good description of this last this last year and a handful of months.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: definitely felt like the white walkers got here real freaking early and they didn't leave for a long time
1: that's good because on game of thrones it took them years and years winter was coming for the longest it was the longest yeah. autumn ever yeah.
0: uh- <laughs> by the way what a terrible like uh, family motto to just live in that type of anticipation of dread for your entire yeah. lives
1: yeah yeah
0: <laughs> we're just gonna pass this down for generations that you were always like winter is always you will never really know joy eventually winter is coming and it will destroy I mean, that I, joy
1: I th- i'm a bit of an existentialist i think i have my own version of that
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm of the same mindset i'm of yeah. the same mindset um how have you been doing during the pandemic what type of things have you done to kind of keep yourself sane and as sane as can be
1: yeah i mean i think um you know the, the travesty of thousands and thousands of people dead and mm-hmm. lost jobs and um, all the sort of calamity that have that's come with the pandemic, all that aside, um, I think the pandemic has, for me, given me a gift, um, some time to, I've been doing theater, we're gonna get into this soon, but I've been doing theater pretty hardcore, um, since I was nine years old um, with very few breaks. And I think that this um, period of time has given me an opportunity to rest and do some integration and to focus on some other aspects of my life, find some balance. And um, I think I will always feel grateful for that in my life. And yeah, I think, I think it's been a gift to recalibrate a little and, um, shift my relationship with time some, so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I have finger dirt under my fingernails right now. I was just doing some gardening, something I started last summer, um, and something I've always wanted to do, but I don't have time normally to do Mm -hmm. that. So, um, and then, um, I work in the prisons and we've actually been really fortunate. A lot of that work has continued. It's changed, but a lot of that work has continued. So um, in many ways, I haven't stopped working. I I also created a piece last July right in the middle of the pandemic. So um, maybe my version of rest is not everybody's version of rest, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it's been slower and I'm grateful for that. I've been reading books for fun and doing crosswords and falling in love and you um, you know, I've been keeping myself busy.
0: That's, that's that sounds like you found some really good things to fill with that time. I mean, you hit us with the last one, falling in love. That's pretty that's pretty fucking awesome. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It, it is pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, we should all be so fortunate to have it happen at least once in our lives.
0: Definitely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the other note that you hit on is reading books for fun. It's yeah. So often for me, um, like, especially before the pandemic, you're grinding all the time, work, yeah. rehearsal. I mean, at least for some of us. And then, like, the idea of picking up a book, picking up a book outside of the script that I have to get memorized or whatever.
1: Right. I'm right. just
0: like, ah. Right. Yeah. So hundreds of emails
1: good. a day do not constitute actually a book.
0: Very true. <laughs> Very, true. <laughs> Very true. Especially yeah. now with, like, like, I love how I'm about to shit should can on zoom meetings as we're doing this video <laughs> um but the idea of like doing anything after work on a ca- on camera is really yeah. and if you've been staring at a screen all day reading yeah like the eyes just don't have the the patience for a page excuse yeah.
1: me yeah yeah that's true as well mm-hmm.
0: so you said we'll just jump right into it theater since nine years old in some way shape or form how did it exactly happen to you
1: Um, when I was nine, I I grew up in the Phoenix metro area. And when I was nine years old, my mom signed me up for, I think a two week, uh, theater class through the parks and rec, um, department, um, in Glendale, Arizona. And it was a melodrama called there's love in them, There Hills. I had I believe one line, but it sort of stole the show. I got to pull out this gun and threaten the villain right at the end. Um, And um, so I did that that summer when I was nine, I had done like a school play here and there. And when I was young, I had a, um, I had a bit of a speech impediment actually, and had gone to some speech therapy and, um, which I'm grateful for. And I think that I had, but for most of my young life, I listened and just absorbed Mm. things. Um, and I was an avid reader from the time I was very young. And I think that there was something about theater that expression was ready to just sort of bubble out of me. And then, um, the following summer, um, my mom, I loved what, I had like caught the bug as they say. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I was 10 years old, my mom signed me up for a number of summer workshops at um, a theater called TheaterWorks. Um, There's multiple Um, Mm Workses, And it was, um, it's like a, it's a community theater, but with like some equity contracts and such. I mean, it's like Mm -hmm. semi-professional and they had a number of youth programming and I started doing that. Um, when I was 10 years old and was cast in their first main stage in my first main stage play when I was 12. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I think from the time I was 10 to 14, I think the longest period I had off between shows was two weeks. I was often overlapping. I remember doing a double header day where I had a matinee and an evening show and running in on the break in between to a dance rehearsal, do some choreography and then go back and get my costume, you know, throw some food in my mouth and get back my costume and get back to, um, the show. So, um, yeah, I've been kind of doing it ever since. I Mm. have thought a lot about what it meant to me, um, So also when I was 10, my parents announced that they were separating and getting a divorce and um, things weren't great before that happened in the home either. Mm -hmm. And I think that period of time was really earth shattering. Um, And I think that the theater, like so many of us became a surrogate home and community. And I mean, I did fine in school in terms of having friends. It wasn't like you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, I was bullied at school, but in the theater, I was home, you know, I don't Mm -hmm. think it was quite like that for me, but, um, but my home didn't feel like a place I wanted to spend much time. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think going to rehearsals and spending all my time there, um, it was where I wanted to be to escape that rough period of time my parents had a really vicious divorce they went back and forth to court for Mm -hmm. three or four years I mean it was just um went on for forever and in the meantime I was joining you know singing and dancing groups and just Mm -hmm. getting as much training as I could and then I went to an arts high school I mean by the time I was 10 or 11 I was like my dream is to move to New York City and become Mm -hmm. an actor and and the rest is history
0: yeah did you feel like were you spearheading a lot of those creative endeavors at, during those times of the your parents' separation and divorce? Or was that something that was like, We are going to put you in this? You you obviously love it, we're just gonna put you in this weather. I know it was movie. all me. I okay. mean,
1: I was like, here, I filled out the form, all you need to do is sign and give me a a check or whatever, you know, that yeah. they needed. Mm-hmm. Um and half the time I was like, I'll figure out how to get a ride or you know figure out my own way there so yeah. um yeah I mean I was fortunate m- there was no doubt my my mom especially was supportive um but she was not a stage mom mm. um she had she had done ballet as a kid and my dad's a rock and roll musician so both of my parents um really ha- valued the arts, specifically the performing arts. And Mm. I think they understood that I was like, I am unstoppable. And they just kind of let me to the extent that we could afford it and that I had the time for it. Well, in sixth grade, I was cast in a show that toured to schools. You know, these touring shows, we've all Mm -hmm. done them. Um, (laughs) But there were, um, as kids, they cast some kids in it. And I missed the maximum amount of days of school in sixth grade before, I don't know, I would have to repeat or um, whatever happens to parents whose kids don't go to school. You Um, go to truancy court? Yeah, truancy court, whatever. Um, But I mean, it was like we would do two and three shows a day. And I was very fortunate because this theater that I worked at uh, really had high professional standards. And, um, you know, they expected you to, be in the room on time, ready to work, um, leave the bullshit at the door, you know, all the things that we have kind of learned. Um, I was practicing it from a young age and mm. really started caring about wh- where would my career be? You know, when I was 10 and 11 years old, where am I going? Without, um, without the kind of stage mom, what is that, Tierra's and, whatever
0: yeah the reality tv show about like the the pageant moms
1: yeah it was nothing like that scene it was Mm -hmm. just like valuing the craft and and interestingly that theater that i worked at um all of my friends all of my peers are um still working philip dawkins is a good friend of mine he's playwright catamounts has done one of his shows um a handful of them uh, have worked on broadway and or done touring shows and um we're all still doing it, which nice. I think is a testament to um, sort of the love and inspiration it instilled in us.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Well, it's so unique. You talk about, I mean, being so connected to what your career may be at such a young age. Oh, hey, Mike, my dog is not <laughs> showing up. Um, being connected to that, that thought process as, as an artist. It, and it feels like, as you talk about it, like it didn't it didn't taint your experience. This still seems like there was a great deal of joy in doing the work. Is that something that you were aware of as you were doing it?
1: Well, the joy was always primary. It was always about connecting with others and um, and working hard on a shared goal um, with people I cared about and hopefully delivering an aesthetic product. Um, yeah i'm just a type a personality the the idea idea of career stuff and everything just sort of fell into place along the way and and i also think that that's something that gets i don't know where i first kind of encountered that um ethos in the theater but that does get really drilled into you and i'm not even sure that it's that healthy but that kind of like if you can do anything else do that and um you know 99% 99% of actors are unemployed. You have to be the best. You have to work harder. You have to, yeah. I don't actually even know that that's the theater or the world I want to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think then that kind of pressure, self-pressure is becomes part of the identity. And I, I think in some ways that's what this pandemic and other things, I think, I think culturally we're kind of unpacking and Mm -hmm. examining is this healthy way to be and um, and to be so career focused and where's my next project and um, and instead to be a little bit more humanistic a little slower and connected and I think at some point along the way I mean I did go to New York and I did study acting and uh, but I think at some point, well, I went to an arts high school and I think it was in the arts high school that I started getting a lot more interested in the art of it. Mm. The um, and started doing more experimental work. I did a solo show when I was in high school, I started getting interested in Brecht and absurdism mm. and fundamentally I started sort of branching off into a different path and um, wanting to do something that didn't look like Broadway. I mean, with, I love, I have, I still, just the other day in the car, I was listening to a chorus line and Fiddler on the Roof. Please don't tell all these people that I am a musical theater nerd. Um, oh, so, <laughs> um, Rubik's
0: Cube, Dan. Let's get that cut out. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I, um, yeah, I am, uh, you know, I have much respect and love for Broadway and, and musical theater and uh, grew up doing it. And I think somewhere along the way, I got interested in developing a voice that might look or feel a little different than that and that happened early enough that then um I think it's always been about the joy and the creative experiment
0: mm. yeah. not it's re- that's really cool I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up your voice it was one of the things that I was excited to have you on for because I find yours to be a very unique theater perspective mm. and so I mean when you to to talk about the human centric aspect of art Um, yeah how would you define theater like what is your idea what is theater to you
1: well I think when I started going into doing theater in prisons Mm -hmm. um, a mentor of mine who is not an artist per se um, a man named Alan Gomez in Arizona he and I were talking about what does it mean to work inside or create inside prisons. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, often all, all we're doing as folks from the outside is creating spaces of possibility. Uh, and I've, um, I've kind of taken that to be one of my sort of life's mission is to create spaces of possibility. I think it gave language to something I had already been experiencing and feeling. And so mm-hmm. um, I think the theater is about Human connection, um, pan culturally across time, across cultures, people have watched while other people moved and made sounds and told stories. And um, I think it's intrinsic to the human experience, mm-hmm. something this kind of storytelling, this embodied storytelling, um, and I think I think it's a search for meaning. Yeah. Or, you know, why are why am I here? Why are you here? Why are we here? Um, and it's a it's a space for questioning and a space for possibility. Um, and I say, you know, um, I do theater to learn how to be a better human being. Mm. And I think that's why any of us should do it. And I've seen some people be be real assholes in the name of theater and they say, ah, it's tech week. I'm stressed out, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think you're doing it wrong. Like I, I put being a, being a kinder, um, more expansive human being above the art. Actually, the art is secondary. The art is how I, and the practice is how I can, um, experience that practice it explore it with other people Mm. yeah so I actually put the humans first and then the art second and then Mm. you know whatever a lot of other shit third fourth fifth
0: totally the the work with in prisons Mm -hmm. was was there ever a resistance to taking this these people on Um, would, would did you feel that there was things that would disqualify them from participating
1: um, no, mm. <laughs> so I've been um, working in prisons for this fall, will be eight years, wow. and um, and I've worked with all populations, um, mm. and including, um, and this may be. This, I don't know, this may set me up for a bigger conversation, but including working at facilities for folks convicted of sex offenses, Mm. um, which are, you know, at the bottom of the barrel for, um, for folks in the public as well as inside prison. Um, I've worked with a lot of people Mm -hmm. um, with life sentences because of violent crimes, etc. And, um, no. I don't think, I think, I think the thing that disqualifies people inside is the same thing that disqualifies people on the outside, which Mm -hmm. is like, be a dick and I don't want you in the room. Yeah. (laughs) But if you're there to be collaborative and, um, celebrate one another and, you know, Mm -hmm. build each other up then, and that is, I mean, overwhelmingly what I experience inside prisons as well, um, then, then you're welcome in, in the room. Mm. Yeah.
0: That's, that's I, it's, it's really cool that you would say that. I mean, I'm, a, uh, without turning this into a long conversation about me, I'm a, I'm a product of uh, an absent biological father and then stepfather who's been incarcerated since before I was born for a sex offense and murder. And, wow. and it's been like, it was a long time figuring out the truth. I was in my late 20s when I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is what all happened and then mm-hmm. even later when i found out exactly how it all happened and there's definitely a resistance on my part to like have that person back in my life of course this yeah. is different from being in a room learning something to help them be better people right and the fact that this is an active way of what's the um oh rehabilitation mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to I mean I wish I wish Waldo would participate in something like this. Mm. I don't believe he's doing so, but I'm I'm glad that there's something like this. I can look to this and say, ah, this is yeah. more than just sitting there for 50 years. Yeah. Making yeah. peace with something.
1: Yeah. Well, also thanks for sharing that. I mean, mm. incarceration is really stigmatized even proximity to incarceration. Um and Yeah. Also, I I try to work in such a way that the work shouldn't feel mandatory to anyone inside, Mm -hmm. which means people are opting in. So Mm -hmm. when people want it, are ready for it, um, then there they are. And folks I've worked with inside really run the gamut. I've worked with people who didn't complete an education past fifth or sixth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, I've worked with people inside with MFAs and sculpture and I've worked with an orchestra director. I've worked with, I mean, the range is there. Um, People who had been, who had, you know, were psychologists before Mm. they were incarcerated, whatever. So the whole range is there. You work with Dr. Lecter? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's interesting though, Sam, that you asked. I've thought um, just in sort of a hypothetical sense, where are my limits? And, Mm. um, you know, when I think about the kinds of folks who are incarcerated at Supermax down in Florence, mm-hmm. the people who have done some truly, truly atrocious things where, um, you know, multiple, multiple, um, victims, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that pushes up against my own questioning. When I first started doing this work, I, um, it was in Arizona and uh, prisons are always far away. So I had, you know, a 90 minute drive or something to and from, and um, I would drive back sort of, I just remember driving through the desert, sort of staring and thinking about um, how to reconcile the people I'm experiencing inside the room with things I know that they are incarcerated for. um, And There's somebody, a dear friend of mine, I remember driving, because this is how I do my life, I sort of stack one rehearsal right into another, driving Mm. from the prison where I just facilitated a workshop, um, directly, you know, eating Mm. as I walk in the door into a rehearsal for another show, Um, and somebody who worked on that, um, his his father was murdered in a home invasion, and just thinking like, Oh, like almost feeling sheepish. Like I, I, I'm not condoning anything that people have done. Like, please friend know Mm. that like your experience matters to me and I'm not diminishing it. And, um, he was, he's always shown me such grace. He believes that he like, he believes like me that art should be accessible to all people or art can be an opportunity for all people, Mm. um, to, Explore what it means to be alive. And mm-hmm. um, he's been really supportive of what I do. And I think about people like you, Sam, who have, um, you know, been either harmed by or that sort of collateral damage of some real harm that people have caused. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's um, it demonstrates a lot of um, grace and capacity to also value the work inside, that it's not this sort of punitive, you know, oh, they should all, you know, whatever, rot, and, you know, um, so, and also, you should know, I'm happy to listen and talk with you sometime more about (laughs) this if you want to, Mm -hmm. um, because I I certainly have grappled a lot, and and then I think I would be remiss if I didn't say that there is, There are people inside who've made some really terrible choices and had Mm. agency about those choices. And we also live in a grossly unjust system that Mm. disproportionately uh, criminalizes black and brown people, et cetera. And um, people are sometimes the victims of their zip codes and Mm -hmm. crushing poverty. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they find themselves wound up in the system when somebody white or from a middle class or wealthy background might not, you know, yeah, absolutely. So I hold both of those things to be true.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, they're not they're not mutually exclusive. I, right. I think one of the things that I, one of the keys to to what you're doing, is, or I should say, not the key, but the thing that keeps echoing in my brain, is arts programs getting cut in schools. Right. An outlet at an early age. Right. That doesn't right. necessarily fix the ills or the traumas that someone is living with in their neighborhood or in within their house. Right. Because we all know a neighborhood could be relatively nice, but inside the walls that That's you right. sleep in, it could be it could be terrorizing. Yeah. And there the fact that there are so many programs that get cut year after year after year, how yeah. it feels like certain governments just look at those as a waste of money.
1: Right. Right.
0: whereas they feel like investing into the prison and dust super industrial complex right. is a is a good investment right um at, at least an investment that won't hurt them in the future it's right. it it is a as messed up as the system is so is the, the society that that perpetuates the system well, and, and also
1: is, we live in this sort of scarcity mentality that hmm. that that there's never going to be enough resources. So you have to take from one to give to another. And Mm -hmm. I don't believe we have to live in that kind of world. I think that a bigger world is possible. And, um, that if our world wasn't so, um, driven by, by greed and, um, in many ways, selfishness, and I mean, really at the structural level, I'm talking corporations and, um, and sort of labor abuses and things like that. Then I think that we might actually find that there's enough res- resources for um, positive and abundant schooling, healthcare, um, ways of alleviating um, crime that don't re- overly rely on policing and mm-hmm. um, a prison system. You know, I think that we could actually dream up a world with enough but that's not the world we're living in.
0: (laughs) No, no, not yet anyway. Not Not yet. yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so unique. I was, you were talking about the, the world of scarcity or a scarcity mentality Mm -hmm. and how to think about it. I, for me, I have not traveled much. Mm -hmm. I have been out of the country once in my life. I've been to a handful of States, but Mm -hmm. it took it, it, without making this sound overly poetic, it took theater for me to see that there are other worlds. And then to realize that one person's story is actually a lot of, can be a lot of people's stories. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter whose lens you're telling that story through. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, when we're talking about representation, which is something that we haven't brought up, but we don't necessarily need to go down this road. But I mean, like, Mm like, there's like, just because it's say a Native American Coming of age story doesn't mean that it's not a relevant coming of age story to all of American, mm-hmm. or I should say, all of the population mm-hmm. that maybe hold that movie. And right. uh, like the arts, I feel like show you that there's no need to have that scarcity mentality.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think uh, another point embedded in what you're saying, Sam, is that um, there are ways that this specific story, the small story, is the bigger story right and is Mm -hmm. the universal and I think you have to be very tricky with ideas of universal when um especially at a time when we're we're really conscious of not because for so long right the white cisgender male Mm -hmm. heterosexual was the default and assumed to be the the universal for everyone and of course it's not um but I think to your point if we had um an abundance of stories all along, then we could see how the specific story of, in your example, you know, a Native American young person coming of age, mm-hmm. that we could see ourselves inside it, kind of regardless of our background, without taking away from the sp- specificity and the um, the lived experiences that go along with that particular identity. Mm-hmm,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to, to backtrack a little bit, you you took your education um and then you went off to New York and studied there. Yeah. What was that time period like? How did that start to shift your perspective on what you were doing?
1: Yeah, theater's um theater in New York is a mind fuck. I think anybody who's done it could probably agree. Um, and um <laughs> You know, I mean, I know so many people who move to New York to do theater and they become really good servers in restaurants and never have time to do theater or um, theater makers like myself. People are doing kind of grassroots work or independent work Mm -hmm. um, who have all of these ideas and can't rent a space to hold a rehearsal. It's just so um, exorbitant there. I went to, um, well, this is probably just not very interesting. Um, I started at Boston. I, I got a scholarship and went to Emerson College okay. um, in their uh, acting conservatory program. I left for a variety of reasons after one semester. Um, fell in love. Um, and um, my grandmother was dying. Um, she kind of helped Raised me. I spent some time with her and I just worked a lot my family actually I'm a first generation college student and I didn't really mm-hmm. know what to look for in a college. Um, my family didn't really have a lot of funds for it I just pretended they did and tried to do it anyway and take out a bunch of loans and um, yeah, I kind of dig college through trial and error, which is not recommended and is very costly and time consuming. Um, I lost many. Cre- I think I lost a year and a half of credits just trying to I transferred twice. And um, anyway, I went from Boston and then um, where uh, what I really where I wanted to be was New York City. I mm-hmm. had a huge poster of New York City on my wall as a kid and um And so I moved to New York and, um, I got into the experimental theater wing at Tisch at NYU. And, um, I had already been kind of creating my own work, but, um, the experimental theater wing, really, you are like generating performances or, you know, workshop sharings all the time. And I got Mm. exposed to, um, well, actually a little bit before this in high school, actually, I got exposed to, um, the dance theater of Pina Bausch, for example. And, um, you know, like Merce Cunningham and performance artists and Vito Acconci and um, these really like wacky, I read Karen Finley's memoir when I was in high school, these really bizarro performance artists and um, moved to New York and and started doing that kind of work, creating my own Pieces. The studio. I loved my studio because the studio windows would only open six inches because they had had so many students go out on the ledge of these windows and create performances out on the windows. <laughs> um, and they, out of sheer liability sake, they made it so you couldn't get out on the ledge anymore. Um, and um, and I was learning from people who I still believe are geniuses, and was doing a lot of physical theater work and. Um, so I was doing that, and I was in a long-term relationship with a woman um, long distance, and then I, um, um, I, I had this sort of crisis one summer where I just felt like New York City felt like a rat race. I was so poor. I mean, like, I would swing by the supermarket when they were getting rid of food, so I could have some uh, food, you know, I, here I was living in this dream of a city, and I would go through the Village Voice and circle all the events I couldn't afford to go to, you know, and just try to find anything free I could go to, mm-hmm. um, and I, I mean, I was still tremendously privileged, I'm not complaining, but it wasn't quite the experience, I would hang out with friends and they would go spend hundreds of dollars on drinks in a bar. And I was like, I can't do this. I'm oh. eating ramen every night, you know? And um, so uh, and, and also, it felt so superficial. There was so much that in New York City that was like you had to be like tall, skinny, wear all black, bleach your hair, have a certain kind of haircut, you know, get ready for the cattle call. And I was like, not interested in doing mm. that anymore. I was feeling like I had a voice. I had something to say, mm. um, even if it felt a little shaky. Um, and I, I left NYU. And I spent a year in Northampton, Massachusetts, and I got a yoga teacher training certificate. I'm technically a certified yoga teacher and started meditating okay. and studying Buddhism and doing yoga. And, um, and I made, I, I made some work up there. And then I went back to New York, um, uh, just a few weeks before September 11th, 2001. Wow. And, mm. um, I was 21 years old living in the city and it, you know, rocked my world like it rocked everybody's fucking world right and um and that was my last semester in New York um and but at that time I had already gotten interested in doing prison work and well another really big thing happened to me there um I had been I lived in New York when the um verdict for the Amadou Diallo trial happened. So Amadou Diallo was a Haitian man who was shot 42 times by four white police officers in the vestibule of his building. Mm -hmm. Two of the officers reloaded their guns. I mean, this is really, this was my, I was young and I remember Rodney King and the uprising in LA, but I was in New York. um, The Bronx was on curfew. I mean, riots, were happening. Um, Al Sharpton was getting arrested. And I was like, you know, like mm. my world opened up and I started really like, it was like the scales fell from my eyes. I think I had some awareness of injustice, but um, the, the police brutality, um, it got me really interested in policing, prisons, incarceration, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, The U.S. was ramping up for war in Afghanistan and then Iraq. And Mm -hmm. it it was a political awakening for me. And um, so that was my final semester in um, New York. And I heard about the small Buddhist university in Boulder, Colorado. And um, there was an interdisciplinary studies program there. And my goal was to go there and learn how to do... Theater in prison so I transferred mm. to Naropa um, and ended up getting a psychology degree, which, lo and behold, is the exact same thing as an acting degree. Uh- <laughs> 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 and so that's what brought me to Colorado. Wow,
0: yeah. it's so funny, Britt. That's where I started. I started in psychology. I did yeah. Psychology for a full year, and I was like, "No, there's yeah. nothing for me." And then yeah. here I am, theater degree. Yeah. And- yeah, it's just anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, to me, I think that the kernel is the same. I am like, I'm a a, a dangerously curious human being. I mean, mm. things that you and I are talking about in this conversation, I will probably go away and Google tonight. I mean, I just, right. I've, um, I'm insatiable in my curiosity, and I think that the 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 big curiosity is about the human experience what does it mean to be alive what does it mean to move through this world with this body and Mm -hmm. to that body that grows and flourishes and accumulates wisdom and then decays and what what the fuck Mm -hmm. um i'm so curious about that and i think that psychology theater and so many other disciplines are a playground for um musing on that in so many different ways
0: can i can i ask uh, where does your current uh i guess facebook status on what it means to be alive <laughs> it felt like your meaning of life i guess if we were to just like put it into a tweet
1: yeah <laughs> oh god sam you didn't tell me i had to answer that question i'm um... so sorry
0: it, it, i told you <laughs> wait i i riff i'm listening here and i'm yeah, trying to like yeah. oh oh
1: um
0: because I can tell you right now, my meaning of life. Yeah, is, you
1: tell me yours, and then I'll revise from there.
0: <laughs> um, I was telling a friend. I was telling a friend today. In fact, I uh, I got a dog in October,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: I was like,
1: I remember I, when you posted about that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I was like, holy shit! I did mm-hmm. not appreciate being a pet owner when I was a mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. I took it for granted. I took my mom and her work with the mm-hmm. dog for granted, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. Within a week, it was just like, no, this is, this is the best decision I've ever made, Mm -hmm. and I've gotta, I gotta like that. That's it. it Changed my focus on a lot of things, and and it, it, it's, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's limited my bandwidth for other things, but it's Mm -hmm. just like loving this little dude Mm -hmm. gives me a lot of purpose, and Mm -hmm. through that, I'm finding, I'm finding more patience in my other walks of life because. Mm It. it, I mean, I don't know, there's just something bigger, even, I mean, some people that may sound crazy, but I mean, it's, it's a nice little, it's a nice thing to have in the back of your brain at all times that there's some embodiment of love in your life. And you can just kind of walk calmly through that. That's, that's more than a tweet. That's definitely like (laughs) five tweets right there.
1: Yeah. Anyway. Well, those those work. They take the yeah. images of them and you yeah. string them together. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it's a, thread.
0: It's a thread. Yeah, thread.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the, yes, I think that's what the kids are calling it these days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think that. I think that it, it's so. Uh, sometimes I struggle with the word love because it can mm. sound really passive, um, and I think love is an action verb and. Um, it's about engagement and participating. Um, so, but still, I actually think love is the jam, right? It's and love, it's compassionate action. Mm-hmm. And so, I think here's my tweet: um, yeah. Love hard, learn hard, take risks, then let it all go. Yeah. I think it's about not being attached to the outcome, right? Is to just mm-hmm. be like. I'm going all in and I am, I'm doing my best to go all in in this lifetime with no expectation that it makes a damn bit of difference.
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: That's where I'm not existentialist. It doesn't fucking matter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's so freeing though. It, I mean, I, I love I yeah. mean, it, the way I, I would, I would paraphrase or put that in my own words to say, you got to be 100% on something. Yeah. It's got to be, it's got to be a fuck. Yeah. Not a, okay, sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. If you're
0: going to make choices in this life, be a fuck. Yeah. About it. The more often you can do that. I think you're going to have a pretty, you'll, you'll look back at, at the, at the stats on the back of the baseball card and go like, that's a pretty good life right there.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and sometimes, and maybe to retract this, I, I had a conversation with my mom a few years back because I'm, I love so many different things and I want, To be involved in so many different things and Mm. leave a mark and whatever and um you know i've done quite a bit of teaching over the last seven or eight years that's been a big part of my life which is not something i ever thought i would do i never had an interest in doing um but even when i direct i try to give people unforgettable experiences of their time in the room and uh, working on the project something they can really feel proud of that they can see their own voice in. you know I just am mm-hmm. always trying to whatever space I do create make it the best it can be and um, I was talking to my mom we lived together briefly when I was in Utah I lived uh, I was in Salt Lake City for two years at the mm-hmm. University of Utah and my mom came and lived with me the Utes yeah <laughs> yeah they might need to work on that but that's another conversation yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <Don't> <laughs>
0: You're absolutely but, right. What was that? It <laughs> was like you're absolutely right. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and my mom, I don't know. I I was sharing with her some feedback a student gave about the impact I had had on their trajectory or their life. She said, "Julie, that's a really cool thing. You you've like left a mark on somebody else's life." Mm. And she said, "If you can do that for one person, that's a life well lived." And think I've been fortunate enough to find my way into spaces where something about the time I've spent with other people, they've carried into the rest of their life in a positive way. And um, like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> that feels like a really, like my work here is done. Good. No. You know, like um, if you can just affect one person and, and improve their life, that's a good, that's a good feeling
0: absolutely no i I mean if you are a fuck yeah about something there are other people who will see that and in turn
1: Mm -hmm.
0: be fuck yeah about it too
1: yeah
0: positive positive energy in one direction is is really attractive
1: Mm.
0: and i and i mean that like i mean that in a in a uh, you know a physical sense i also mean it in like a metaphysical sense it could to see somebody actively doing something. I mean, you're you always there's always going to be haters. And that's okay. Right, right, Cuz they right. they they haven't found their thing yet. They're going to get there. Right. I'm looking at the mic as if it's a hater right now. You find your <laughs> thing. Um, Eventually,
1: Mike, just yeah, stay in the game. You'll get it. You'll get it.
0: Um But yeah, it's Anyway, I okay. said what I said. Yeah, it's just it pulls people in and when mm-hmm. you when you're a teacher mm-hmm. bringing that type of energy the learning that can happen, that people get out of their way to follow that pursuit. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I hated college so much. It was all lecture-based. It always felt Mm -hmm. lecture-based and Mm -hmm. it felt so distant. It never felt like the teacher actually cared anymore. Mm -hmm. They might have, but I wasn't getting them at a time where they still wanted to be a part of that work.
1: Right. You know, Mm -hmm. and,
0: and again, we can talk about how it's maybe because they're trying to write a book so they can keep their tenure or whatever. Yeah. 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 But anyway, mm-hmm. it's when, when they are passionate, people follow. And then that, yeah. they do remember that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: This has been a really fun and an inspiring conversation. Before I do a sign off here, I do need yeah. to ask you something important that came up a while yeah. back. You're yeah. Talking about ramen. What are your four favorite flavors of, of ramen?
1: Oh, I can't eat it anymore. Oh, you can't. Yeah, oh, and no. I also have been a vegetarian for a long time. So I always just ate the vegetable ramen, but sometimes oh. I would add, um, yeah, I have celiac. I can't eat ramen. Oh, um, no. Yeah, I mean, I'll eat anything with a rice noodle or something at this there point. There you go. But, um, yeah, just the vegetarian stuff. I mean, as a kid, I ate the beef and the chicken and oh, whatever, but um, do you worry we haven't done enough theatery talk? I feel like I've talked about. Oh my
0: God. No I mean, I, we can talk <laughs> we'll let, here, before we go, I gotta ask you, duh, I had Brian Freeland on like three yeah. episodes ago. Yeah. What was your time with Lida? How did that begin? What, what inspired yeah. you to take the reins there?
1: Oh well, I mean, Brian is Brian and I talked on the phone today. He's a nice. dear friend and a mentor of mine, and um, and truly one of the more uh, visionary people I've ever known. And I think any anybody who's listening to this who knows Brian, um, or ever worked with Lita, knows that Brian has a mind like no other. And um, so, gosh, how did that come to be? I don't have any. I'm not good at concise storytelling. Um, It's fun. It's perfect for podcasts. Yeah. So um, um, (laughs) I had seen a few leader project shows. I mean, I've been interested in experimental theater, and there wasn't like a whole lot of that going on in the early 2000s. And actually, I auditioned for a show. Iphigenia crash lands, Balls on the neon shell that was once her heart by Curidad's Fitch and um, and then I auditioned for another show, which was um, a gender reversed Taming of the Shrew, and I um, I ended up doing the Shakespeare at the time Um, and since then Brian was like oh god I remember you like I withdrew myself from the casting process for Mm -hmm. Iphigenia and he was like oh Julie Raida I wanted to work with you then like you left an impression. And I remember in that audition, I would, I climbed under a chair. I was flipping things over. I mean, I just sort of like, um, I did things you're not supposed to do in auditions, which is probably why Brian liked it. Um, and anyhow, so, um, that happened. And then in, um, I think it was 2005 or 2006 was the Mm -hmm. inaugural season of the Boulder international fringe festival. And, um, I was friends with all those kids. I actually, I, I did some really like administrative support and volunteer work to help get it launched. Um, and I entered into the lottery and, um, was, um, Selected for a performance at the Dairy. I was in the East Theater at the Dairy and I developed a solo show. I was, I think, 26 at the time and Mm -hmm. I was scared to death. I didn't know how to, for myself, design a rehearsal process. I broke into the Dairy at night to rehearse and I lived right across the street. um, Mm -hmm. I broke into Naropa at night to rehearse. um, and yeah, I did this hour-long performance. I had a, a media designer, had video in it, and I had a live musician um, who was becoming my girlfriend at the time. Um, and nice. she like played drums on my body. And um, anyway, it was called My Burning Tires. And um, I I had a I was fortunate to get a really um, good production, uh, I'm sorry, promo image. Mm. And it got on the cover of the... I don't remember. I think it was the Denver Post's um arts and culture section, just my face. Um, Mm -hmm. it was just good shot, you know. And um, so I got good publicity. Brian Freeland came and saw that show. And um, so he was like a little bit of a super fan at that point of what I was doing, and I was (laughs) a fan of his. And then um there were auditions for Manson Family Values. This was the remount of Manson Family Values, so Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't in the original cast. Um, and so I went and auditioned for that. It was cast and it was um, a tour. So we spent three or four weeks in London. And then we also did a tour of the Southern United States down in Austin and Atlanta. So Brian mm-hmm. and I got a lot of time to get to know each other, talk about art and um, find any kind of synergy. And um, we were at a small theater in London and I, I was like leading the charge to do like a flash mob in Piccadilly to try to get some folks to come out to the show and, mm-hmm. you know, let's go do a weird like art bomb on the tube. And, you know, <laughs> so I was like organizing promotional things and, um, and just stepped more into like a leadership position among that crew. And then mm-hmm. from there, Brian and I, it was sort of a match made in heaven. I think we really quite adore each other as artists and um, developed a friendship from there. And um you know, as a young woman in the theater, a lot of people don't see you as a director, and mm-hmm. I want—I was a director. I wanted to be a director. I was a theater maker, but I was like 26, 27, and I saw friends my age who were men being given opportunities, but not um, – you know, I have a high pitched voice, I, um, I'm i small, I'm diminutive, um, and I, I just, I had written letters to theaters and said, hey, I'm a director. Um, I'd be interested in working with you maybe as an assistant director, da-da-da-da, and it never went anywhere. But mm-hmm. Brian um, saw me as an artist and as a director, and he multiple times said, I mean, the bindery where we were next to the Mercury Cafe for so long, mm-hmm. um, Really was my sandbox. And he saw me um, do the work to clean it, hang lights, um, change the toilet paper, clean the toilet, you know, anything that needed to be done, do the box office. I did it. I painted, I built things um, and designed things. And um, he said, you know, here are the keys, kid, do something good with it, and gave me some opportunities. Um, I mean, to have space and um, a producing body to kind of cut my teeth and hold auditions. And um, I mean, Karen Slack was in the first thing I directed for the Lita Project. And um, there were a number of other incredible artist who intimidated me and um and i didn't feel like i knew what i was doing so uh, i wore black every day of rehearsal and i thought then they'll take me seriously (laughs) 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 and to this day i wear all black at least on day one because then i think well i'll seem formidable So I think I care less and less. Um, beautiful thing about age is, is sometimes you just sort of like grow into your own sense of authority and decision making. There is less and less to prove. Um, Absolutely. But I will forever be grateful for Brian because I mean, to this day, my website is populated with um, images of shows that I got to take the helm on um, and take some risks on. And and I mean, there is no shortage of sweat equity that I put into those myself. Um, but um, but it was a partnership um, and I mean, it was like, I had my own emerging artist laboratory mm-hmm. and he believed in me. I will always be grateful for that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, I think I would, I think the, the the Denver theater community is grateful for that as well.
1: Oh, <laughs> thank um, you. Of
0: course, Oh, you've talked, you've mentioned the phrase experimental theater mm-hmm. a couple of times. Yeah. What does that mean to you? Well, probably, I think
1: uh, go yeah. Ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to What does it could mean to you?
0: <laughs> what does it mean to me? <laughs> yeah. Experimental theater I, to me always felt like anything done outside of a quote unquote conventional space.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, it could be, it could be anything. But like, I always felt like if if there were seats that were put in there to hold people facing in a specific mm-hmm. direction. Yeah if you're doing something outside of that, or if the seats are spaced out randomly assigned, then that's, mm-hmm. I guess it's all about chairs. <laughs> that's my opinion on it.
1: It might be a little bit more about chairs uh, yes. than just about chairs. <laughs> I, um, I'm i sure it is. <laughs> I think it's a pretty dated term. Mm. I mean, I think at this point, it's funny, Brian and I talk about this. Um, before we had the word for devising, we mm. were creating original works starting with no script with an ensemble. We called it developmental theater, like the idea that we were developing something together. Mm. Um, And then devising kind of came into the lexicon. And then um, similarly, I was, I did a piece in. When was that? 2007, 2008. I did a piece that um, only a decade later, or maybe five or six years later, I decided to start calling immersive. I called it environmental. And, um, and Richard Schechner has a book called Environmental Theater. I mean, this is not actually anything new. We have, it's it's um, it's hot right now, but it's not actually new, I think. Mm. Um, I mean, depending on how you define immersive or site-specific, this shit's been happening for centuries. And, um, yeah, so how do I define experimental? Um for me, when I am calling something experimental, it means I'm actually walking in with an experiment. I usually am thinking, now, I um, went to an arts high school. So my science education goes to about eighth grade. Um, <laughs> and then I went to an arts high school, and a, I mean, an arts college and then Buddhist college. So um, I love science, actually. I appreciate science. I thought I was going to be a scientist as a kid. Um, but... Um, anyway, scientific process, right? You like start out with a hypothesis and then you set up an experiment in order to test that hypothesis. And you're going to set up some, um, some givens, and then you're going to put in an X factor or variable so that you say, you know, I have these six things that are assumed. And then the seventh thing is really like, that's the thing we're testing. And, I would say that um, my process of doing experimental work is really like I'm thinking. I am going to experiment with X. I am interested in how does an audience respond when um, when you shine lights on them, or mm. how does an audience respond when you surround them with bodies of performers, right? Or you know, or And by respond, I don't mean I'm doing, I'm trying to do anything confrontational. I think I'm curious about like, how does that shift their meaning of the experience? Um, What's the takeaway for an audience? Um, And yeah, usually it's audience specific because Mm -hmm. audience is what makes theater, right? I've done a lot of really cool things that no one watched. It wasn't theater. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and then uh, there's something about having witnesses to whatever mm-hmm. the thing is that shifts it, right? There's something yeah. about being seen or heard that gives you um, the performativity. Uh, so usually the variable has something to do with audience. Like, how do I shift the audience's perspective? Mm-hmm. Um, if I give them a choice, I did a piece where um, it was a, a hot wax, a piece in eight bits, and it was the first piece, it was in eight little chunks, and the first chunk and the last chunk were set, and the six in between were determined, the order was determined by, um, by an audience member coming up and hitting a button on a computer um, that then would alert the stage manager, who would then shout back to the ensemble, this is the next scene, and they would all furiously change their clothes and come out for their cue. Um, oh, my and- God. I was like, will this work? <laughs> you know? Will audiences, how long will audiences sit there before they get up off their butts and like make a choice? And um, which also means I do some unconventional stuff, you know, in the sort of equity world, which again, I have respect for those practices and I can play by those rules. They exist for a reason. But when I'm making my own shit, I, I, rules are meant to be broken. Um, I, because I often am experimenting it the show often isn't totally set at opening night. Mm. I'm not going to mess. I'm not going to have my stage manager kill me, you know, from changing too many things or or the performers or, but um, often if I'm like, I'm curious what happens when I try this and then you have some test audiences or preview and then you have opening and then you really get to know, is it working? Or if I just slightly alter this or, you know, bring the sound levels down. Does the audience then feel more comfortable talking to one another or, you know, those kinds of small alterations. It's not like sacrosanct at the time that you open it. There might still be some fiddling around the edges so that you can um, lean into whatever the experiment is.
0: Mm. Do you, do you put a lot of um, time into having test audiences or do you go like I, I've, I feel comfortable, like, as the work that I've done with the catamounts, I feel like with our immersive stuff, there's, like, one to two
1: nights, and then, yeah. boom. Listen, Sam, when you're yes. doing experimental theater, mm-hmm. um, you're lucky to get an audience on opening night. You don't, want, <laughs> you don't want to exhaust all your 14 friends who will come all yeah. on your test audience. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, normally, I, I, you know, and that's why I... Um, <laughs> Sometimes it's hard because if you're trying to do something that really fundamentally requires large groups, Mm -hmm. um, you still kind of have to mock it up. I mean, sometimes my test audiences are just a handful of people, but informed people Mm -hmm. who can imagine how certain things will work and still can give me feedback on the effectiveness of things. But um, no, I mean, I don't. Um, I listened to some of Brian's conversation with you. I don't think he talked about this, but um, anybody who listens, who's either attended or um, been part of a leader show knows we really did have the, um, the bar fight equation pretty often where um, if the cast can't lose in a bar fight, call the show. Mm. Um, (laughs) You always want to be outnumbered by your audience. And um, we had some, we had some pretty tiny We'll call them um, micro performances um, <laughs> with the leader project.
0: I'm, uh, I th- this this might get me fired, but uh, it happens. It happens at main stage, like quote unquote traditional theaters too. We oh, did of the course. I mean we did the catamounts with like or not the catamounts. We did the Kentucky cycle. Sorry, the Kentucky mm-hmm. cycle at Vintage, mm-hmm. like twenty two actors.
1: Yeah,
0: to a house of. Three,
1: oh yeah. yeah, including my mom. <laughs> That's the kicker. And you're, yeah.
0: and you're just so you're like,
1: hey, can we just cut this and just go to the bar now? <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> just some... save ourselves a lot of sweat and maybe yeah. a load of laundry. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you probably just you probably just go right. Well, you can't because it's a two parter. Oh. oh yeah, yeah. Well, there's more people coming at night, and so then like another three. That's six. Uh... Yay. <laughs> Oh, this is so great. I can, I can hear them swiping on their phone.
1: Oh God. <laughs> I've been there. I just did this show this last summer. Um, it was in a, um, uh, what am I thinking of? Storefront. Mm-hmm. So I was behind glass and it was a solo show and everybody was socially distanced outside. And um, it was a, move, a dance movement piece. Um, and um, it was so interesting who showed up for that piece. And it, everybody was just outside on the streets on the sidewalk, which doing that kind of work, talk about x factors, anything can happen, you know, people yeah. come by with their music blaring and ruin a moment or whatever. Um, but on the last night, I don't know who some of these audience members were or got out. And uh, there were some girls who showed up. <laughs> I mean, this is the middle of the pandemic, too, right? right. There wasn't a lot to do. Um, there were some girls who showed up, three or four of them. They brought camp chairs, a few bottles of wine. They sat down right in front of the windows. They were, like, ready. <laughs> like, um, I'm doing, like, a weird experimental movement piece about death. I don't know that this is, like, happy hour fodder, but okay. <laughs> well,
0: that's, no, that's a perfect pairing with a Pinot Noir out of the box. Yeah, <laughs>
1: mm. yeah it was definitely, like, a Chardonnay or something like oh, okay. this. <laughs>
0: Oh well then it, it must have been daytime theater. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember doing a piece once where somebody got out some floss. They were in the front row and started the floss. I was like, really oh, right now, good. Yeah. Oh yeah. no.
0: Yeah. That's not the time. Like not I'm glad the time. not
1: for your friends next to you, not for we can see you, you know. Yeah. And yeah, this is oh. not TV. I did dinner theater once in high school, and there's some crazy shit that happens in dinner theater. I, <laughs> I did uh, Plaza Suite with Neil Simon's <laughs> Plaza Suite in high school, and um, and I played the anybody who knows that piece. I played Mitzi, the bride, who was uh, locked in the bathroom, and I played the um, secretary in the first act. And I um, know, oh my God, people who, dinner theater people who are like not used to they're not theater. Audiences that have all this sort of culture pill training that people get. And oh, it was amazing. I actually loved it. You know, people would be like, Girl, get out of that bathroom. You got a husband waiting for you, just screaming at me. Like, meanwhile, there's a whole scene playing out. And just (laughs) um, people put their babies up on the stage while they were eating. Oh, the meal comes. They took the car seat with their baby and just put it up on the stage. We just walk around the baby. Uh, (laughs) Sure, why not? (laughs)
0: <laughs> you just just picking up the baby as a prop now
1: yeah yeah or just like move it aside we I have a monologue right here that's where my special is um yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't know yeah. I don't know if these hot lamps are going to be good for the kid I'm yeah. just going to kick them yeah. off the edge a little bit now.
1: yeah I mean there, uh, we could all share our uh you know war stories it's not oh, going to get man. very interesting but, but yeah When you
0: started talking about dinner theater I just kept expecting someone to get up on stage to complain about the whole, the temperature of their chicken
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I need to send this back. What does that have to do with me?
0: (laughs) I am in the middle of a monologue here.
1: Yeah, I'm acting. (laughs) I'm doing art. Hello. Hello.
0: (laughs) Pay attention to me, not the the chicken.
1: The dinner is not the point. The theater
0: is. No. This is dinner theater. This is not like a five-star die.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, man people audiences gotta love them gotta love them they give you so much to work with we've we've done a lot of ghost light talk what i mean by ghost light talk is like my last question of the podcast what is the ghost light you'd leave on for the next generation behind you that piece of advice Hmm. that you wish you had before you Mm -hmm. started Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, i think it's i think there's something in there about creating a softer space mm-hmm. than how you as softer, more tender space than how you've had a space with more justice space with more listening um, and to extend that to yourself as well. Mm-hmm. And then to others. Yeah. yeah. And then all that other shit I said. No, totally. <laughs>
0: Julie, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Yeah. It's been really Really cool to have you on. Oh, thanks, Sam. It's Absolutely. been a real
1: pleasure. And what a delightful thing you're doing. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, I know you were doing it before COVID, but what a shining light throughout too. And um, yeah, I'm all about community. And, you know, that's this is one way we can build it, to hear Absolutely. voices from folks around. And Colorado, is the theater scene is full of really tremendous human beings, warm, friendly, um, kind people.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm lucky they haven't forced me to stop doing this. I'm glad that uh, so many people seem to be keen on it to some yeah. extent. So that makes me happy. And yeah, I'll and good for you.
1: Yeah, you. good for you. Good. Um, congrats to you and Dan both.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I, yeah. We'll, we'll gush about Dan after we stop recording this. He he gets it from me all the time. But I'll say it on the record just so we're clear. I love Dan, and the growth is. A lot in part because of that man. Um, Julie, thank you again so much for being a guest. Ghosties, she's Julie Rada. She is awesome. She is unstoppable. Now, Dan, do the damn thing.
1: The, um, that war by the whatever horn ensemble.
0: Hypnotic brass ensemble. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.